In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmda.org. and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places, it's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, reporter at the Houston Chronicle. I'm here today with Nancy Sarnoff. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Rebecca. Today we're talking about co-housing. I know we've all heard about co-working, but co-housing has yet to become as widely known, I think. To give some background, this was one of the first stories I did. When I joined the Houston Chronicle two years ago, I had actually done a story about blockchain and how it's being used by a Houston property management company. And I received an email from a reader, which we read. And um, the reader asked me if I had heard about co-housing. And I don't really remember how we got from blockchain to co-housing, but I thought it was really interesting I put together a piece on it. And since that piece two years ago, the project has continued moving forward. And I thought it'd be an excellent opportunity to bring them in on Looped In and talk about what they've been doing. We have with us today, Brian Bowen and Kathleen English. They're two architects working on the co-housing project. Hi, Kathleen. Hi. And hi, Brian. Hello there. I'm going to give my take on co-housing and then you guys can tell me whether I'm explaining it accurately or not. My understanding of co-housing is it's a collection of private homes grouped around shared spaces that usually include a communal kitchen and a dining area, a guest house, and a garden. So in a way, it's like a condominium, which would have like a rooftop deck or clubhouse, except for in a co-housing development, um, there's a real emphasis on community. So these shared spaces aren't only amenities, they're sort of the point or the heart of a community that people are intentionally building. And that's what the difference is. Does that sound accurate? I think that's a good definition. Yeah. Okay. Well, Rebecca, when I was reading your story, Mm -hmm. at the end, someone said something about how it was sort of like being back in college. I think that might've been Kathleen. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I, I mean, I liked that because wouldn't it be nice to go back to college knowing what you know now? <laughs> it would be so nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think my my appeal or my attraction to co-housing came from, you know, my time in college where I was with a bunch of people who I was sharing experiences and sharing space and sharing time. And we're also architects and planners. And we discovered like, well, what, would, what would it be like if you designed a neighborhood where this kind of thing could continue? Mm-hmm. Like we could share a wood shop or we could share bike facilities or we could like have a building where we had awesome parties together. And you know, and kids, what if our kids grew up outside in the yards out in these places? How cool would that be? And then we discovered the co-housing book and we're like, oh, cool. This stuff exists. Um, oh, there's a, there's a book on it. Yeah. So that's a perfect segue. Uh, just to explain. So Brian has worked on co-housing communities in the past. Kathleen is planning to be one of the residents of what is underway right now in Houston. It would be the first co-housing project in all of Texas because these communities, as nostalgic or futuristic as they seem, actually exist right now. That's the perspective they both bring. And I was curious, sort of, how did you guys first hear about this? And how did you decide that this was going to be something you wanted to spend your time doing? 
So I first heard about it from Tom King, and he has been one of the most outgoing and outreaching members of the local Houston community and one of the founders. And he reached out to me, but coincidentally, he he did so only a few weeks after I had just been to Portland on a vacation and saw a couple of co-housing facilities there and had visited with friends. And we had that conversation that a lot of people have had. Oh, you know, when, when we should all buy land together and we should all build little little cottages on that and we could share everything and common area. And and a lot of people have had that conversation. For me, mm-hmm. the difference is that not very many people really act on it. And I think that's why there aren't more co-housing communities across the country. So Tom kind of caught me right as we were saying, we really want to do this. And I had come back from vacation and Googled co-housing Houston just to see if anything popped up. And, and actually, I had seen his name. And then a week later, he showed up at my office, which was really strange. So but that was kind of my introduction to it. Wait, what brought him to your office? He came to my office because he thought the building, which, by the way, is a co-working facility, would make a great mm-hmm. co-housing facility. And he was going to try and selling it to him to turn into co-housing. And instead, I joined the community. So, oh, wow. That's a wonderful story. I like that a lot. I, I did grow up in Houston in one of those neighborhoods where neighbors were very close and we all knew our our neighbors and was even more fortunate to raise my children in a on a street in West University Place, which is kind of a Mayberry anyway, except that our street was probably much more so. And just that particular combination of neighbors uh, created a real a real microcosm of, of community and sharing and, and activities between the neighbors. And, I really benefited from that because for much of the time I was a single mother, all these other families on the group just took in my kids and, and the the whole herd of children would up and down the block and nobody ever worried about where they were. And, and it was awesome. And as our kids have gotten older and, and that has kind of feathered out a little bit, we started intentionally looking for somewhere to move that either had that or, in, or as the case turns out, where we can create that on our own. People love this idea, but it seems so hard to do. So what has the process been like so far? And where are you now? So we spent over a year uh, looking at land, looking at lots and lots and lots of properties. And we had, our, we had group meetings where everybody put in their criteria. And in that perfect world, you know, the criteria was walkable, close to transit, safe lots of green space. And after about a year, we did find a piece of property that that just met almost everything we were looking for. So that was a great moment for our group. And that is when Brian kind of came in in a much more uh, interactive way, because now that we had land that we knew where it was going to be, and we had all these aspirations, (laughs) Brian is is the one we said, okay, come on in and, and show us how to do this while building the relationships from the very beginning. And you're, you're talking about how it's like the opposite of normal development. People, I just want to sort of like elaborate on that. People usually buy a finished product. And I think there's a real leap of faith here where people are putting money down and they don't know what it'll look like yet. Right. Or at at least at this stage, um, there's also, you know, since it's private property, it can be resold and those those buyers will be able to see exactly what they're getting. But when you start a community, which is why it's so hard to get off the ground, 
Well, where Kathleen is coming from, I mean, if you think about her experience in this, Mm -hmm. someone knocked on her door and she thought, hey, this sounds like a pretty interesting thing. I'm going to keep track of this because she's a curious, uh, insightful person. And she's she's at a spot in life where maybe it's a benefit to her to, to live this way. So she started down the trail. And so here's someone who bought into an idea, not knowing even where in town it was going to be or who the neighbors were going to be. It's a really interesting conceptual leap for someone to, to take that step, you know, and then there's some other people, they really need to know which block you're on. They need to know what the floor plans are, or they need to know what the home price is, or they need to know what it looks like. And so every time you make progress through the, through the design process um, or the development process or the construction process, you open the door to a whole new set of buyers who are able to, to make a commitment based on what their comfort level is. What are some of the sort of common concerns that that people have when, you know, you're bringing them into a group to discuss a project like this? I mean, I've experienced that pretty freshly. Yes, there are a lot of concerns. And I think and I think we all don't realize how much control we have over where we live and how our homes are laid out until you get involved with a group where you 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 know you need to do that collectively and that you're not going to get everything you want. At the end of the day, you 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 have this belief that you're going to get more of what you need by living in community, but you know you're going to have to let go of some of your control and it is really really hard but the fear of not being able to control the floor plans, control uh, all of those decisions. Right now, we don't know what our cabinets are going to look like or what's going to be on the floor. And we have some really nervous members about <laughs> what that might end up being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a long trust building exercise. And I think I see people realize that as they take the risk of getting involved and in revealing what they care about, um, revealing what their concerns are, as Americans, we're often just used to like that being a source of conflict. What it actually is in this context is a, it's a source of connection, and you you find out like oh I really I really care a lot about this flooring or I really care a lot about this other thing. The reaction that people have around you is not to try to like fight you on it. The, the reaction they have is to like oh yeah you care about that let's see if we can make that work or I care about this maybe we can make this work for each other. You you find yourself in this like mutually supportive dialogue that's really very different from most of what we experience day to day. And, um, and that's one of the things in terms of making decisions, it's really fascinating. You know, most co-housing communities use some level of consensus. Um, some use something called sociocracy. Um, and, you know, the framework for making these decisions is often more like, okay, you, you know, you can have a preference, right? I prefer uh, hardwood flooring or I prefer a solid surface countertop or I prefer the common houses over there instead of over here. But um, I have a range of tolerance, too. You know, inside my range of tolerance is like, well, actually, you know, I could live with, you know, certain colors of plastic laminate countertop, or I could live with a different kind of flooring. Yeah, I could live with that to make this all work. Sure, I could totally live with that. And then that's all like sort of inside your um, consent area. Those are reasons to consent to what's going on. Whereas like outside of that is like, I think this is actually outside of my range of tolerance. I can't, I can't sort of abide what's going to happen next. And, you know, I think you find when it comes down to it and you you get really clear on why you're doing this. I'm doing it for the community, for the people, for the connection, for the experience of living there. I'm not really doing it for the countertop. I'm not really doing it for a lot of these other things that we think we're attached to. Yes. 
So I think what's made it a, a very different experience and, and, and raised the bar in terms of, of getting it done while building that community has been doing it during COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because For real. <laughs> How's that looked? Yeah. So Brian mentioned that, that it all revolves, the early planning all, all revolves around this series of workshops that are designed to not only build community, but design the community. And we have had to restructure those to all happen over Zoom. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting um, process, partially because I feel like we had the the previous model down. We were really good at that. And, you know, so I would fly there for a series of like four workshops and we'd conduct them in a weekend and we'd walk away with what we needed. And it's actually a very efficient design process because you get the focus and thought and passion of the group all at one moment. Um, so that's really useful, but you can't actually quite do that over Zoom in the same way. There's just different limitations, but there's also different opportunities that come with that. So one thing that we've discovered with Cohazing Houston is you can actually sort of deconstruct the workshop process that we had before, which was actually entirely predicated on flying someone like me or Grace Kim or Laura Fitch across the country or somewhere else to to drop out of the air on a parachute and do some things and then fly away. Um, so it becomes very architect focused in that because that's the person who's arriving and leaving. The luxury we've had with Zoom is uh, we can pace ourselves through that in a different way. And one weekend, it's always hard to, you know, you go in there, you make a bunch of decisions about your money and your life and your house and your neighbors. And like, good Lord, that's like a, a lot to ask of people. So we're finding that we can we can do it, I think, a lot more elegantly and still very efficiently. And has it changed at all your thinking about why you want to live in co-housing? Because I just feel like in the era of social distancing, building something around making social connections, you know, that you guys have probably had that on your mind quite a bit. What I've seen with our communities around the country um, and the one in Canada is that the experience of going through COVID was largely isolating for many, many people. And the reasons it was isolating is because our urban infrastructure is is isolating. So if you're not going to places like restaurants or going to places like bars, you don't have an equivalency in your neighborhood. You don't live in a walkable neighborhood. You're not bumping into people outside. You're not uh, hanging out in the city park right out down the street together. You know, uh, So all the people who I know in all these communities have really doubled down on their desire for community as opposed to backing away from it. Um, and I can tell you just in my own community where I live in Boulder, Colorado and Wild Sage co-housing, as soon as COVID hit, you know, first week of March, second week of March, somewhere in there, we, and we all realized, well, this is something we're going to have to contend with. We just snapped into action. We, we closed down having community meals. We usually have several meals a week. We stopped having external access to the common house, and we set up spreadsheets online for people to offer help or to ask for help so we could make sure that everybody had their needs met. We identified everybody who had um, any kind of immune susceptibility uh, made sure they were getting cared for. We started sharing trips to the grocery stores so that fewer people had to go. We started sharing, like my 13-year-old uh, now takes out the trash and recycling for a woman uh, who's got an immune-compromised uh, issue like uh, a few times a week, and they've, they've developed a relationship over that. We've got uh, a almost daily happy hour that's now happening outside, which is, um, you know, small enough numbers and enough separation and outdoors that it's legitimate. We had from the very beginning, three happy hours a day on Zoom. So you could get up and have a 
coffee chat or a lunch chat or a happy hour chat, just because of our, just by virtue of our social infrastructure and our decision-making ability and our collective thinking, um, we had this like magic power to transcend almost any of the problems that uh, everyone suffered during COVID. Nobody in my community is, you know, lacking for social contact. Nobody's lacking for help. People have offered financial assistance to each other when they've been laid off from work or had hard times. People have uh, helped with, out with mortgages. So it's, it's very meaningful support. That sounds ideal. That's, that was really interesting to hear you describe how that works during COVID because all I kept thinking leading up to this talk that we were having is, oh, people are, are probably moving away from this idea potentially because because of covid maybe people are dropping out but to hear you describe sort of how it was a how there was just so much social support that didn't necessarily or doesn't necessarily mean physical support or or you know person to person contact support and that is what so many people are lacking right now and i was curious about governance and how these things are are run and because i i also started thinking well you know my mom lives in a condo building and there's a condo association and there's a shared pool and this and that and there's a board and you can elect someone there's you know you you have to vote on certain issues but wow have they had some big fights and so i guess i i have a couple questions and they will probably fall in line together, but how is it governed and what happens when there is an issue, say, between two neighbors? Do you have to sort of sign something that says, when you join this community, you agree to some sort of arbitration or mediation or something when something kind of goes bad because it it might? Yeah, people people bring all of their best and worst into co-housing, so you can expect to see all of that in there too. So one of the things that we work with in terms of the just the process of communities is we'll work with them on like really thinking through their conflict resolution policies early, well in advance of having conflict. Because once you have conflict, it's a super hard time to get everybody to agree to how you're going to resolve it if you don't already have some um, pattern for it. The way most communities are governed is either through like sociocracy or consensus. And um, when I say consensus, it's it's typically uh, to block a consensus decision needs to be really based on something that's bad for the community, not just that you don't like it. And consensus done well um, is an environment in which like, you know, let's say Kathleen and I live in the same community. Um, I want to get bees. I think bees are really cool. I think they're important for all these reasons. But I know that Kathleen is not much of a fan of this idea. So who do I go to first in a voting environment? Well, in a voting environment, I get all of my allies together and try to overwhelm Kathleen and try to win. That doesn't do anything great for Kathleen and maybe I lose. Um, in a, in a either sociocratic or in a consensus-based environment, I go straight to Kathleen first and I say, hey, I, you know what? You know, we, we were talking over beers last week about bees and it seemed like you were not in the idea. I actually think we should try to figure out how to do it. What, like, what is it that you don't like about it? Can we figure out a way to make it work? And that's, that's how things happen in, in community. So then when I go to the community with my bee fetish and my idea and, and I say, I already talked to Kathleen and she said she didn't like it here. She liked it over there. It turned out it was just a place thing. 
we're good. Everybody goes, okay, great. We got it. We've, we're ready to go for this. I think, you know, the way more specifically that we're governed is typically it's a team-based environment. So we have sort of like the eyes of the law would say is the HOA board of directors, right? So you've got some kind of legal group. The way that's peopled by our community is that four of those seats are representatives of the common house team, the buildings and grounds team, the finance team, and the landscape team. Those teams then are charged with their own scope of work and they have their own autonomy to do the work that they're charged with, with the budget that they're given. The three other members of that HOA board, which is for us called the steering team, are generally new members and it's more of a pulled out of the hat kind of a scenario. And I guess I'm also curious, we're talking about like how many unknowns there are, but there have been some some things decided at this point that weren't when I um, wrote a story two years ago. So I'm just curious to hear like what what are the things that have come into focus so far, like location, whatever you do know about design? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to think that come into focus. I, I think really just the, the once we had a specific site, um, mm-hmm. then of course everybody wanted to go look at it. But the location is 114 Del Mar. It's on uh, one and a half blocks from the Altic Howard Hughes stop on the Harrisburg line. And it's one block away from the tap bicycle trail, hike and bike trail that runs all the way into downtown and, and along the bayou and really connects us up to, to, to other things within our neighborhood, but also within that whole east side of town. So we're really excited that it's, you know, that it's so close in and so close to transit. And it's about three blocks from Eastwood Park. So it just, it met all of our criteria. And I'm just looking at it on a map right now as we talk, and it's right by Turkey Bend. And there's a big project planned over there, I think, with the um, Buffalo Bayou Partnership. Which fortunately didn't Um, break in the news until after we had negotiated a price. (laughs) 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 Thank you for that. Yeah, good for you for keeping it it so quiet. Yeah, (laughs) It's a little over one acre. Okay. Sorry, have 33 that. homes that will be focused around a courtyard. Parking will be kind of off to the side, um, surface parking. So, so the real um, design concept that we're we're building on is that the homes at all levels, from the ground floor through the top, there are some at a fourth floor level, will all have a view into a central shared green space. And, uh, and, and, and not only a view, but, but as you come in and out of the facility, that's, you'll go through this green space and courtyard. So it becomes a meeting area, a, a casual meeting or more planned meetings. It becomes very shared space. And if people are just hanging out on their balcony or front porch, they're hanging out within that, that shared area. So even if you're just reading a book by yourself, and sitting on your little outdoor area, you can at any time potentially see three to five other of your neighbors, people that you know. And we think it's going to really help in terms of connectivity, spontaneous activities, building relationships, all of that. There was a lot of discussion, Brian, about whether to put the common house right in the middle of that courtyard or whether to put the common house on the street. So do we make our common house, our shared community area, do we make it on the street and very connected to maybe the neighborhood and the community, like a front door to the community? Or do we put that most shared area between our members in the center of our site and make it 
kind of what you go by if you're getting out of a car or walking in from the rail line, you know, that you pass by that common house as you're going to your unit. And that was one of the most bantered around discussions in early design that we had. And we did ultimately decide to put it inside, but but Brian was kind enough to widen the separation between two of the buildings to be able to let more light, more air, and also more view from the street into the common house. So it's not going to be gated? Not gated. No. And what... Um... And what is it going to cost? Uh, I guess you just bought, you basically just buy your house, right? And then when you're ready to leave, if you want to leave, then you sell it. That's correct. Even though it's a te- an intentional community, each family owns their own home. And their home has everything in it that you would need, you know, kitchens, bedrooms, bathrooms. It's a fully, it, it's a fully planned home. So we're still in discussion about whether you buy your parking space. There are a few garages and carports. Um, not everybody wanted one, so we're not planning on that for everybody. But you know, so when you say what does it cost, you can you can be as small as a one bedroom, somewhat more affordable unit. These are the, I wish there was more affordability in this kind of planning, but it's it's difficult, especially as close into town as we all want it to be. But there are ways that you can control it by saying, well, I you know I'm not a car person. Maybe I'll have a car, but I don't need my car in a garage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, one of the things that, sorry, that Kathleen's getting into there is that is the operational affordability of co-housing. I and mean, it really is passively affordable in a way that's really remarkable. Like if you think about like these 33 homes are going to share one lawnmower. These 33 sh- homes can share a uh, electric um, leaf that's charged by solar panels. And there, that means that most of those communities or community members can get by with one car per household instead of two. So that's like a, a fairly huge savings. Um, you're sharing meals together. You're sharing all kinds of resources. You've got a shared wood shop, a shared patio studio. Patio studio. There's a co-working environment inside the common house. So maybe you can save three or 500 bucks a month on um, having a desk somewhere else. So what we find is there's actually a pretty huge affordability boost to living in co-housing. Um, in terms of the initial sale price, you know, it's you have to pay for the construction and you have to pay for the architects and all the sort of stuff in the land. And uh, so the prices are, you know, comparable to other market rate prices, but with the community playing a role as about half of the developer, the profit drive for the project is very different. Um, So they're not trying to maximize what they can sell it for. They're trying to minimize what they can sell it for to themselves and still make the project work. So it's a real different, different stance. And in terms of the experience, um, you know, Kathleen talked about pulling the parking away. The typical kind of the day of the life story I talk about living in Wild Sage co-housing, which is in the middle of Holiday neighborhood in, in North Boulder. You know, I, I wake up in the morning and I um, usher my kids out the door, you know, typically in the sort of pre-COVID times anyways. And they hop on their bikes and with a whole bunch of other kids, they ride their bikes to school together, maybe with one dad or one mom. And then I, you know, I'm like, oh, God, that's... Um, thank God they're out of here. And, um, you know, someone walks by and says, Hey, Brian, have you had any coffee yet? And I'm like, no, I didn't get coffee. My rat of coffee and my kids are horrible because they wouldn't put their shoes on. And, um, and I go over to Karen's house and I have a cup of coffee and catch up with her for five minutes or 10 minutes. And I'm like, Oh, I gotta get to work. And then I walk home from work and I walk back through our community garden plot and I eat all the strawberries. And the kids are outside playing together. They're occupying each other. They've, you know, um, they're playing across ages. They're doing all kinds of great stuff. 
uh, Nick says like, Hey, have you had a beer yet? I'm like, no, I haven't had a beer yet. And so here's a beer. And then all of a sudden there's like four or five of us having a beer together. And then somebody says, you know what? I have all this extra produce from Cure Organic Farm, which is our local awesome CSA. And who knows how to cook uh, awesome turnips? Okay, cool. So, and I got a steak and let's all, all of a sudden you've got this like community meal happening. So I mean, that's the sort of like the kind of experiential component that we're trying to contrive a little bit through design, right? Um, and if you live in a tuck under townhouse um, slot development, you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you push the button after getting into your secure vehicle and the the door opens and you zoom out and it closes behind you and to ensure you don't run into anybody and you drive off to your office and you, you have that experience there and you drive home and to make sure that you don't see anybody, you push the button on your ceiling in the car to open the garage door and you zoom in there and cl- closes behind you. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to have kids, you release them into the eight foot tall cedar pen you've got built behind your house to ensure they don't have any interactions with other humans. And you live your life with a TV and a couple different kinds of remotes. Uh, you know, for me, that's not how I want to live. Uh, can I have a tissue, someone? <laughs> you know, my statement to what Brian That's my said. life. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nancy. I'm sorry, everybody. I mean, it's just, the problem is our urban environments are providing us with the worst possible living circumstances. You couldn't come up with a meaner kind of development than what we're doing across the board. Why are we doing this to ourselves? And it turns out if you, you know, if you're a developer and you're trying hard, you, you might get close to this for sure. If you're a developer and all you're doing is looking over your rearview mirror at what sold last year, you're looking at what kind of countertops and what kind of knobs and stuff like that, that nobody actually cares about at all. If you ask human beings how they want to live, this is what they tell you. I have one last sort of technical question, and that's when you sell your house. Do you have to, does the buyer have to be approved? Does the buyer have to sign an intention document? Conventionally, co-housing is, uh, it's a condo. You can sell it to whoever you want to sell it to. Um, And, you know, we had a bunch of research done on resale values, and it turns out they hold their value much better than anything else around them. Um, And typically, most co-housing units resell without um, realtors, sorry, realtors, um, because there is... People know um, the community. They know what's happening. They want to be there. And so if I want to sell my place, I email Chris, who lives in my neighborhood, and say, hey, Chris, I want to sell my place. Can you send me the interest list? And there's like 150 people on an interest list. And I can email them and sell to them directly. And that ensures that the community is getting someone who cares, who gives something to the community when they arrive, as opposed to just taking away from it. And it's not always perfect, you know, and, and people sometimes move in and they find out it's not as good a fit as they thought it was going to be. So, but overall it works. It's also kind of self-selecting because uh, the units in order to create all that great shared common space, they're smaller than most market rate units in, in the same area. And yet they sell for very similar pricing. So it's kind of self-selecting. If somebody is really more interested in getting more square footage in that part of town, they're not going to buy in the co-housing unit they're going to buy a townhome or a home that has more square footage for the same price. If somebody is really trying to get back into Mayberry, which is what my husband and I are trying to do, they're going to be willing to pay a premium on the square footage to buy the community, the neighborhood. Kathleen, do you guys have a name for the Houston community yet? Um, 
good question. Not yet. We have a list. I looked at it this afternoon of 83 possible names. So we have a oh, work wow. to do. I feel like our name is probably on that list somewhere already. Um, we, <laughs> we just started name storming um, activities about uh, four or five days ago. And we'll be doing that for probably the next few weeks. And then hopefully out of that, we will have a name. Yes. Well, well, exciting, exciting. Um, thank you both so, so much. Rebecca has asked me to wrap up for her since the since there's a technical difficulty. But um, Kathleen and Brian, really, thank you for, for sharing all this information about co-housing. And it was really great to get a perspective of someone who, who lives and, and breathes one every day and, and someone who's trying to get one off the ground for the first time. So again, thank you both. And we wish you the best of luck. Absolutely. Thanks, Nancy. And thanks, Rebecca. And Kathleen, thanks. It's really good to see you here on this environment instead of the other meetings that we're always in together. Yes, I agree. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Appreciate it. And Looped In listeners, thank you for being here as well. As always, if you have an idea for a show or just want to say hi, you can reach out to Rebecca on Facebook or Twitter. She is at R.A. Shoots and I am at N. Sarnoff. Until next time, thanks for listening. 